Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth in Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Emma Fraser. And I'm Lillian Crawford. On the show this week, Mrs. Harris packs up her bags and heads to Paris. It's a sensory explosion on Flux Gourmet. And on Film Club, it's grotesque gastro satire, the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover. All coming up on Truth in Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So Emma, been only a few weeks since we last had you on. Um, I I very much appreciate all of the work of yours that I've been reading since though, particularly um, your piece on the costumes of Go Revenge. That was a very delightful, um, sorry, Do Revenge or Go Revenge? I really liked that, I must say. But yeah, your piece on the costumes was kind of a real cherry on top of the cake for me. Yeah, no, that was a great conversation uh, I had with Alana Moorshead. Like, it, it was one of those films as well. As soon as I saw the trailer, I was like, I need to talk to the costume designer because it was just such a candy explosion. It did all the nods to every teen movie I love growing up. And she was pretty much the same age as me. So when we talked, she she's British as well. So it was really fun talking to another Brit about our influences and talking school uniform. And then, yeah, things like Olivia Coleman, the bearded dragon, having her own wardrobe. That was that was a really fun detail. And that she was so easy to dress. Well, I'm glad that we have you on for a week that has got some absolutely fantastic fashion going on. Oh, like, do you have any highlights of the year? Costume-wise. Costume-wise, yeah. Oh no, this is this is one of those things where I'm now put on the spot. I mean, I've literally just done conversations with the Ariane Phillips who did Don't Worry Darling. And I know obviously there's a lot of conversation about this movie, but the costumes are impeccable. Ariane Phillips is an icon. Uh, she did Once Upon a Time in America. Uh, no, in Hollywood, not America. Uh, <laughs> and she did Walk the Line. She's worked with Madonna, uh, Single Man. She did, like, she's someone I've wanted to talk to for a long time. And the costumes and that I thought were top notch. And same with Blonde again, um, the costumes even though the film is obviously controversial the costumes I think nail the Marilyn look um so that's recency bias but those two I would definitely say and Lillian I wanted to talk to you about this thing that I've noticed you've been doing uh these you just hosted is it called a relaxed screening at the BFI I'm really curious about this like what is it that that entails yeah so I'm autistic so I sometimes find being in the cinema environment quite distressing and that's not uncommon for autistic people and um, people with different forms of neurodivergence so we'd basically put on screenings that try to make that experience a little less overwhelming keeping the volume 
down fairly low um keeping the lights on a, a level that's not complete darkness that kind of thing people are, um making sure that everyone knows they can move around if they need to or leave the cinema anytime there's a safe space for people to, to, to leave if it does get too much um so i did one on monday um at the bfi for les parapluies de Sherba, which was a really interesting I, I didn't choose the film i was sort of told that this is a film we were going to do um i was quite surprised because it's quite an overwhelming film really there's mm-hmm. it's very intense in its emotion and style but people responded to it really really well and we had a discussion afterwards so yeah I think I think with these things they're fairly new so it's just sort of learning from them learning what what people respond to what people find too much um and trying to create a space that, that that's safe for people um of all forms of neurodiversity that's that's wonderful um it's kind of something that I like hadn't really considered um that that cinema environment can be incredibly stressful I remember coming out and seeing you straight after Suicide Squad which I think you know also you had a visceral hatred for that film but it was like a really unpleasant experience on like many levels with how noisy and how crowded it was yeah definitely um it's something that I'm definitely sort of wary of going into london film festival next week is sort of <laughs> how overwhelming sort of those those kinds of crowds can be and the, the sorts of films that i choose to watch but um yeah it's 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 um it's important to to make people aware of this and make different cinemas aware of this and and try to put on these these kinds of programs Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to the Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris tells the story of a widowed cleaning lady in the 1950s who falls madly in love with a couture dior dress and decides that she must now have one of her own. She embarks on an adventure to Paris, which will change not only her outlook, but the very future of the House of Dior. So, Emma, I feel that we've had so many bleak films of late, and I was so happy when I saw that um, that, that we had a kind of really heartwarming one coming up. Um, but is Mrs. Harris gone to, goes to Paris, you know, a bit better than your just kind of regular twee feel-good movie? Yeah, I think so. I mean, part of that is down to obviously Leslie Manville is she's always great. And it's interesting seeing her in a film about fashion and this period of fashion that's very different to Phantom Thread, like the opposite (laughs) Phantom Thread pretty much. Um, So yeah, I do think that it does have the components of these kind of classic British twee movies that we're very, very good at. That sometimes you come out of them and you're like, oh, that was lovely, but I'm never going to think about it again. And I think probably because I am interested in the history of fashion and Christian Dior and that whole side of like couture, that it did have that element of like, I came out and I went straight to my books and I I kind of nerded up again about Dior and it just kind of hit every note for me. And has this kind of got any like, you know, historical accuracy in terms of what was actually happening to in the house of Dior in the 1950s? Or is this kind of more fantasy? 
I mean, there, there are elements that are uh, accurate. Like, so the kind of going into uh, Presa Forte as it was, um, so expanding from the haute couture uh, element of the business. I mean, that's definitely something that was happening around then. And that year, actually, so 1957 is when Christian Dior died. Um, he died suddenly in October of 1957 of a heart attack. And so it did throw the house into kind of a bit of a a tumultuous time um, when uh, Yves Saint Laurent took over at the age of 21, uh, which is also a very fascinating story. So it kind of, it has those elements of fantasy, but the stuff to do with the kind of strikes and that whole element did feel baked in reality. Uh, Lillian, did this work for you? You seem to be someone who uh, is, you know, a woman of great style. I'm wondering whether (laughs) films about fashion are something that you generally connect to. Yeah, hugely. I um, any film uh, re- remotely related to fashion, I will watch. Um, I remember the uh, Christian Dior exhibition at the V&A what a few years ago now, and I lost count of how many times I was going there. So this is seeing this this film about someone who um, can't afford Dior dresses should stress, but <laughs> is absolutely enamoured by them and absolutely you know sort of in love with them um it's very very much something that i um connected with um i did watch the a 1992 tv version of this book which is by paul galico um it was quite a charming book and there's a whole series of books about mrs harris um as, as she's called um which had angela lansbury as um mrs harris and diana rigg as isabella pear's character in this version so that's 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 fun <laughs> and, a, and a sort of old omar sharif as the um the sort of love interest um of 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 Mrs Harris who um sort of turns on her a a little bit and sort of reminds her of her social positioning um even when everyone's sort of generally being lovely um although the the thing that I noticed in this one is that Isabella Pear is really mean which is really funny um she's just Mm. she is it's it's very similar in many ways to um Emily in Paris which I, I I find quite distressing this is like the good version of Emily in Paris because Mrs Harris is so much nicer than Emily um the the sort of overlap in casting as well um so Isabella Pear plays the sort of um Sylvie type character um in this which I I thought was a lot of fun it's sort of her her late career doing very silly movies rather than perhaps doing something that's (laughs) actually a bit more serious well you know Isabel Huppert does have that kind of ability to be like I suppose that kind of awful woman that you do feel you could destroy your life trying to impress does that make sense yeah I think so um she's I don't know that her performance in this reminded me a bit of Greta in some ways that when she's speaking in English there's something quite sort of disconcerting about it and the way that she sort of has this on-screen presence opposite Leslie Manville is 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 very funny but I um I, I thoroughly enjoyed that I thought it was a a fun dynamic um yeah <laughs> but it, Emma like so much of this film is about that you know it's about the dress but it's also not about the dress like do you think that it kind of did capture that this you know this isn't just about you know her wanting to look pretty in a gown yeah like there's obviously a lot of talk about fairy tales uh in the film and the fact that she is a widower she's it's post-war britain it's 1957 so it is a decade after the war is finished but you can still see the effects of that and the fact that she does have this job where she gets to see these kind of things like she's working for rich people she gets to see garments like that so 
it's like you can be that close to something and not experience it and it's less about the material side of it and more about the fantasy like when she goes into the atelier and she sees the courtiers making the clothes and she's like you captured moonlight and you kind of feel like that I also went to that BNA exhibition and to see those clothes people think fashion is frivolous and it can be it, it is frivolous but it is also capturing arts in clothing and I think this movie does a really good job of guessing to why something like spending 500 pounds on a dress back then like it is more than about the money yeah I was kind of slightly surprised I didn't know and I mean I know that this has existed as a book and as a play uh, but I didn't know anything really coming into it that there's like Lillian did you we how did you find the kind of class warfare side of things (laughs) um it that that side of things is quite messy um I'm not those those boundaries aren't really drawn very clearly and um it is quite funny how sort of she tries to engage I say she does she doesn't really try it the the the, um the model character Natasha and um the accountant at Dior are sort of always talking about Sartre um (laughs) which is just really funny (laughs) and she says they go to like the Folie Berger and she says um about um and nosy and then it turns out to be la nose and it's 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 such a strange sort of class divide but then at the end of it she sort of leads them in this strike action and there is a certain sort of class awareness going on um yeah i don't know it's it feels messy but it's interesting i would say emma did that side of things work for you the kind of larger societal ills being manifested between leslie manville and um what is she called? The woman who's playing her her boss, who was in four weddings and a funeral. I've forgotten oh, her name, but she's got yeah. a kind of monstrous. Oh, Anna Chancellor. Yes, Anna Chancellor. Yeah, it's a kind of monstrous aristocratic boss. Yeah, I mean that's like yeah, it, it it is kind of messy and it is very surface level. And there's obviously stuff throughout as well about how rich people can't pay their bills um, and the fact that being uh, wealthy it means that you take advantage of people around you. You don't pay for things when you say you will. So I thought that stuff was interesting from a surface level point of view. I I think it isn't going too deep. And then the strike action as well. It's all very, uh, again, fairy tale. Like it is a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that side doesn't feel particularly real, but I, I think I got swept up in it in the moment. Yeah, it does seem that there's kind of a rare British subgenre of kind of feel-good comedies in which there are also strikes. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder whether that says something about kind of the British character, that these are things (laughs) that we put together. I guess it's like a sense of you want the working class to rise up and it, it, it seems like a lovely idea. And then sadly, when we see what's going on in the news uh, with you know, the financial crisis and cost of living issues. It's a nice daydream that doesn't match reality. And I wonder if that's also why we're good at it, because it happens quite frequently, you know, whether the 80s with the the minor strike, and there's obviously movies about that that are told from like a very rosy perspective, but with Mm. like an undercurrent of of grit. Um, So I wonder if it's just filmmakers grappling with the reality but in this like hollywoodified way 
Yeah, it, it almost feels like kind of we can't allow something to just be be lovely. Um, like that would kind of almost be, uh, you know, a little bit um, too brazen or something. But, you know, for me, the kind of elements of this that work best were the bits that were unashamedly trying to make you feel good and tell a lovely yeah. story and have a woman who's had so many difficulties in her life just get a win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. It would be nice to see it. As a, there is a musical version. I'd like to see that done as a film. Do it like Funny Face or something. That would be amazing. Oh, well, hopefully not with all of the dramas that have recently gone on when they tried to put Funny Face on Broadway. But yeah, Lily, you said that you've revisited this ty- um, several times since you first saw it. Why was that? I, I, I don't know. It just really moves me. I, I, think some, I think especially sort of, as you were saying, there's been a lot of bleak films and there's been a lot of bleakness in this country recently that this is the first film that's really sort of made me feel very happy in a while so it's quite nice to be able to just watch it and cry with happiness wow thank you that to Anthony so Fabian. Sad. Yeah, no, thank you to Anthony <laughs> Fabian for this life life rope <laughs> as, we, as we sail on our sea of despair <laughs> We should probably uh, get some scores on this. Uh, Emma, do you want to go first? In anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect. So anticipation, uh, I was at four, you know, knowing that Leslie Manville plus Dior plus Jenny Bevan doing the costume, she's probably going to get another Oscar nomination for this. She won this year for Cruella, um, and she's obviously won for... Mad Max uh, before so yeah four for an anticipation four for enjoyment I, I had a good time cried a bit laughed enjoyed the fashion and then four four for the uh in retrospect um because again I love Dior I love costume design so this <laughs> has everything that I want basically it's a feel-good movie doesn't go too deep and yeah does exactly what it says it's gonna do I didn't realise this was the same uh, woman who did the costumes for Mad Max. I love it when she wins an Oscar. I'm kind of a bit of a awards ceremony um, watcher, which I feel a lot of shame around. But I love it when she wins an Oscar because she's always just in a denim jacket, you know, in old jeans and a, and a kind of leather jacket. And it's so fascinating that somebody cares so much mm. about fashion but then also kind of happy to just express themselves and not go with the status quo of the event yeah. and she was yeah, she sorry. wears oh sorry i was gonna say the thing she tends to wear to these uh, to oscars as well it tends to be in relation to the movie she's nominated for so she kind of dresses mm. the theme which i love so there was like kind of whole like vivian westwood vibe for cruella um mad max she went with the the leather so yeah she kind of dresses theme and she's been nominated 11 times now so Mm. she's definitely a favorite of of the academy and for a good reason well i mean they they are getting increasingly unbearable but maybe i will watch this year's again (laughs) just in the hope that i can i can see her uh lillian what about you in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect yeah i'm exactly the same scores as Emma um falls across the board with this one as I say I've already re-watched several times and will almost certainly continue to do so might actually get to see it in the cinema which would be lovely I'd like to (laughs) take my family to see it it's it's the sort of film that's that's nice would be nice to watch with other people um I think it's it's I think it's going to do I hope it does very well I think I think it will cheer up a lot of people and um what more can you want from cinema? Um, well, slightly more in my case, because my 
Um, <laughs> I'm, my scores are going to be a little cooler. Uh, probably three in anticipation, four in enjoyment, and three and in retrospect. Like, I think it was perfectly lovely, but maybe it kind of, compared to all the other feel-good British strike movies, um, it kind of, the politics side of it just felt a little bit, almost like twee to me like you know when people make poverty twee and you're just like well what kind of purpose is this really serving your heart's in the right place but I don't know that this is um you're giving this the weight that it fully deserves but yes yeah, still I would recommend it to many people and have already texted my grandmother to look out for it at her local cinema next up Flux Gourmet many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wagovi and zepbound for those who qualify plus they accept most insurance plans To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Set in an institute devoted to culinary and elementary performance, a collective finds itself embroiled in power struggles, artistic vendettas, and gastrointestinal disorders. So Lillian, Peter Strickland, generally a bit of a Marmite film director, um, Mm. did you come into this as a fan? Yeah, very much so. Um, Duke of Burgundy is one of the best films ever made. Um, I would (laughs) say that quite firmly. Um, And... I like his other films. I like Barbarian Sound Studio a lot. Um, but I think that what was so striking seeing the trailer for this film was that it looked like Barbarian Sound Studio. Um, I wasn't really sure going into it what he was doing differently this time, which is a film all about sort of using food to create sounds and, and this sort of sensory experience. He's very interested in 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 a very tight sort of um, sensory awareness of the sounds that different fabrics make, different objects make, um, which, as I was saying earlier, as an autistic person, is very sort of heightened and 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 something I'm very aware of in all aspects of my life. So maybe there's something to be made of of, of Peter Strickland's style and aesthetic from an an autistic perspective. Um, no, I, I I was really looking forward to it, and and I think it was it was largely met by that level of expectation. Um, I'm really interested in performance art 
generally, um, particularly sort of um, women using their bodies within performance performance art, people like Carolee Schneeman and, Mar- and Marina Abramovich. So seeing this was really interesting and the inclusion of food was quite strange to me. It's not something I, I, I'm, try- I'm not sure I can sort of pinpoint what precisely the references there or if it's trying to create something completely um new with, with with this style of food i think i think sometimes it reminded me a little bit of um this piece that Dam- uh, damien hurst did based on samuel beckett's breath which had like um all of these sort of cigarette butts in like um sort of um surgical trays and and, and bits of food and stuff like lying out and there are there are scenes in this film that feel like installation pieces themselves that are, are set up in that way um that does sort of it's those moments those really artistic moments that I really love about his films and that that it all sort of homages that 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 Strickland does like um to Stan Brackage with the moths in in Duke of Burgundy it's um he's very much a filmmaker who is trying to sort of question the the um sort of limits of what different forms of of art are and whether or not performance art can be brought into cinema that, that it's not something that you're actually interacting with as an audience um these kinds of questions really fascinate me so I I think that that was something that he does really effectively in this film yeah I mean that certainly is the case and I could see kind of strangely a lot of parallels with um crimes of the future and kind of exploring Mm. that um but to me I, I kind of felt like I couldn't ever fall into a rhythm of the tone maybe of this film mm. like Emma, did it kind of, did you feel that you were on the same page of it? I'm kind of giving him a bit of a, I have to say, I was ill. So it's possible that that <laughs> was a factor. So, you know, I, I wouldn't kind of take that as being too damning an indictment. But um, yeah, Emma, did that kind of work for you? Because it's it's quite funny, I suppose, but it is also mm. quite self-serious. Yeah, the tone, I mean, this is my first Peter Strickland film as well. So I, I, I'd wanted to see it in fabric um, and then just never got around to it. Um, mm. So yeah, this was my first experience and it's been a while since I've seen a film of this kind of uh, style. So I think, I, and I also was a bit ill and I've also had acid reflux the last week. So <laughs> it felt very, uh, <laughs> like, I was like, this is really stressful because it's reminding me that I also have acid reflux. Um, so I think I, 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 did enjoy the kind of weird tonal shifts but at points I was a bit like what are you trying to say here is this all satire against people who are trying to control the arts like the Jan Stevens character who who I mean I love Gwendolyn Christie and that was my favorite performance in the film and I was kind of just trying to work out what her role like what that was trying to signify. Um, so I, I had various ideas, but I was also like, am I reaching here? It's one of those films I think that makes you question your kind of perspective and whether you're seeing things that aren't there or not. Yeah, I mean, he certainly has got many like spectacular moments in where we are kind of looking at the performances themselves. Like Lillian, did you think that he that was something that he's able to capture, like the kind of what a live performance of something like that would be? Um, yes, I mean, I I think this is this is partly what I'm I'm driving towards in in my conception of the film and, and how successful it is. Is that I think that the film itself is asking how successfully you can put performance art 
behind a cam with, with a camera of, mm -hmm. of, of filming it and that happens within the film itself with people taking photographs of what's going on and the way that you sort of preserve these very live performances what's so interesting is that there isn't there is there's a very clear that barrier exists within the performance art itself that's not often the case with forms of performance art but there would be some kind of use of the audience within those those installation pieces um that I don't think that the film really taps into but then of course the fact that it's a residency and it's actually lived in is that the whole thing ends up sort of becoming this piece of performance art um and that there is there is an element of satire to it which I, I thought was very effective um although, although there is always a sort of issue with uh, mocking the sort of pretentiousness of certain aspects the sort of um the wealthy person who's investing in these things and the way that people are sort of responding to that in this case by throwing terrapins through windows into mm. into soup um um is 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 i don't i don't know if that's um as clear of, of what where there's a, there's a certain sort of um almost Benwellian critique of, of, of social structure of people sort of sat around lavish dinner tables and things and um, hints of a certain uprising, but actually it's just coming from sort of other jealous artists. So I, I found it very funny. I think it's a very funny film, but I also think it's very beautiful and uses those artistic elements in a really interesting way that I, I yeah, I think it was, it was questioning a, a specific form of artistic creation that I don't remember seeing in a film for 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 quite a while that um, I found really engaging. Yeah, no, I am with you. Um, I thought the a lot of the kind of moments of of, of humor really like punched through for me, and particularly the terrapins. And I love you know that whole the art world for you know what I know of it. Those rivalries are kind of so funny in in many respects mm. of everybody just kind of accusing everybody else of, of, of being uh you know overly pretentious and you know not really self-reflective but like I suppose my where it lost me was that I didn't see much being built upon that like once we've kind of you know seen this premise mm. we've kind of had a few laughs we've sort of seen the wild and weird things that people are doing it, it, it just kind of I don't think it really like built upon that for me no it's interesting I, I I don't know I think that there is a certain there's a certain mockery towards the I mean I won't spoil where it's sort of building towards but there is there is a certain sort of parallel drawn between the use of the food and the art and the impact of food on the body and the way that the body responds to that and a certain catharsis that can be brought about through artistic creation um I don't know. I, I think the performances were really wonderful as well. I think that's something, I mean, you mentioned Gwendolyn Christie, but um, Ariane Labed and Fatima Mohammed as this sort of um, artistic um, collective duo um, who are sort of these brilliant, <laughs> almost pastiches of, 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 of sort of a previous era of performance art, just sort of chain smoking and, and floating around the, um, the grounds of the house. I, I, I thought they were astonishing and the way that they sort of blend the art into how they actually live as people was, was really fascinating. Um, not so sure why Asa Butterfield is here in this film. Maybe, maybe that's a criticism um, that he, he, um, he does feel slightly out of place. Um, yeah, I, it, it, he felt like he was in like 
maybe like a Christopher Guest film whilst everybody mm. else was doing something a Very little <laughs> more, more subtle. But what about you, Emma? Were there any kind of like standout people or moments for this film? Um, yeah, I've mentioned Gwendolyn Christie already. Um, and I, I will obviously point out the costume design again, because it's my thing. Um, so her costumes were designed by her boyfriend, uh, who's Giles Deacon, the fashion designer. Um, I love that power couple. Yeah, he didn't do the whole uh, film, um, and I, uh, so yeah, Saffron Kulain did the the costumes for everyone else. Um, but I loved Gwendolyn Christie's like it was like a mixture of uh, masculine and feminine, like those huge skirts, like the organza skirts with these tight kind of tailored jackets and ruffles, and I, I just it was visually like extraordinary to look at. And every time she came on screen, I was just excited to see what she was wearing. Um, in terms of performances, I thought the, and I'm going to forget his names, the the journalist, who's not a journalist, who's a hack. Um, yeah, he says that he's a hack, but he actually seems like a pretty good journalist to me. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. And I, and I love that kind of whole high art versus low art conversation. The fact that the doctor kept being like, you don't know who this person is. You haven't read this person. So I, and I like those kind of like dichotomies between the high and the low and like who gets to decide what you should have read to be considered like a writer. Um, mm. So I thought those aspects worked really well in terms of the overall message or what I thought the overall message of the film was. Um mm. But yeah, I mean, visually, even in the really gross parts <laughs> that were maybe like I didn't want to particularly be looking at, um, even those were like beautifully shot, I thought. Mm. Well, we should get some scores on this. Um, Lillian, you're probably going to be the most positive. So let's start on a high note. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, as I said, Strickland is one of my favourite directors, so I'd I'd say a five going going into this. So although a trepidatious five because um, I, I I was slightly struck by the apparent similarities to Bavarian's Sound Studio, um, I'd say four for enjoyment. Then um, may, 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 maybe saying that that there are aspects that are slightly confused within the film um, that sometimes it, there's there's these tonal shifts, as you said, that that sort of pull you slightly out of it but then five in retrospect because I think what it's saying about art and what it's doing about art particularly modes of performance um and also it's very queer I should point that out there's there's a, there's a good level of queerness in this film that I thoroughly enjoyed um and and expect from Strickland so I I think that um yeah I think that's where I'm sort of sitting on it now wonderful Emma what about you uh I probably went in at a four I you know I'd heard about Peter Strickland I was excited to see my first Peter Strickland movie it the poster was intriguing um then the actual film probably a three just because it it, I did find it at times I wasn't entirely sure what it was trying to say and the tonal shifts um but there were really striking moments as well and then probably three in retrospect again because there were elements that I really liked in performances that I enjoyed, um, but it probably isn't going to stay with me for a very long time. Uh, yeah, probably threes across the board for me. As much as I um, as I have really liked a lot of Strickland's last films, um, I don't know, somehow the description of this sounded like a bit um, unbearable. <laughs> um, <laughs> then, yeah, I would say three in enjoyment, three in, in, re- uh, in retrospect. But again... Very unreliable three. I was taking a lot of 
cough medication <laughs> and uh, was very exhausted. And I think now I might have to give it a go after Lillian kind of has, has praised it so much because we rarely entirely disagree. Up next, Film Club. The cook, the thief, his wife and her lover. At La Hollandaise Gourmet Restaurant, every night is filled with opulence, decadence and gluttony. But when a cook, a thief, his wife and her lover all come together, they unleash a shocking torrent of sex, food, murder and revenge. So, Emma, another feast for the costume eyes. <laughs> but was this your first time watching this film? It was my first time watching this film. I I, I had to buy it on DVD just because that was the, the way that it seemed available. Um, also, I end up, I, I, I do love physical media. So I think I got to see the full version because it was two hours long. So mm-hmm. I think I got to see the, it, it's an 18 certificate. <laughs> so yeah, my first time experiencing this film, as soon as I saw Jean-Paul Gaultier's name in the opening credits as doing the costume design, I let out a cheer. Um, and Michael Nyman, the uh, composer as well, who did the score, is another favourite of mine. So that was also exciting. The actual film was an intense watch. <laughs> I don't think I was quite prepared uh, for what exactly unfolded. From I mean, from that opening scene, though, you kind of know that it's going to be going to some very dark places. Uh, so, yeah, it was another food, sex, extravaganza of, like, grotesque elements and, yeah, fully wild experience. Yeah, I went through, I, I first came to this at university and I, I went through this period of about four years of, like, that three men insisted on showing this film to me. <laughs> I don't know why, but like I have an almost kind of Pavlovian response to be wow. like, I feel like I'm on a bad date when when wow. when it starts. But it's, I mean, it's a wonderful <laughs> film. I am able to kind of eventually look past that. Uh, but Lillian, was it also your first time with this, or have you are you already a fan of Peter Greenaway? No, this is this is my first time watching it, which is frankly embarrassing for someone who is very interested in this kind of cinema and particularly in in this kind of British cinema. Um, It's one of my grandmother's favourite films. She's always talked about this film since I was very little and has always said that you must watch um, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover because it's one of the best things ever made, which is probably not the best thing to say to like, like an eight-year-old it's probably a good thing that my 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 my, my parents wouldn't let me see it <laughs> until I was quite a lot older um I, re- I think I remember I, th- I always think I know I, re- I remember seeing Peter Greenaway talking um on a television broadcast it must have been at the BAFTAs or something I, I know he won a um lifetime achievement award and he said that um the thing the great the very great thing about being a film director is that you get to put your sexual fantasies and fetishes up on screen um so i'd always thought that this film was going to be like very fetishistic and um and very sexual but it's like really quite horrific it's a very intense and graphic film um there's sexual elements to it um heather mirren spends a lot of time doing that in cubicles in the restaurant with 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 the lover but um yeah, I, I mean, th- th- I can see why my grandmother recommended it to me. It's very much sort of, um, she also loves Derek Jarman and Jarman's films and that kind of like, just taking like a warehouse and filling it with colour and vibrancy and great costumes um, is just mind blowing to me. This is, this whole world is so fascinating and so rich. 
um, that's clearly inspired Peter Strickland's films. Um, like Flux Gourmet is very clearly inspired mm. by the use of lighting, the use of color, the use the use of of, of costumes, as, as as I say. And then there's also this kind of like Jacobean aspect to it that I find really fascinating. The use of um, John Ford's "Tis Pity She's a Whore" as the sort of basis for for the plot, um, and the way that he twists that at the ending, which I won't ruin for people who haven't seen the film because it has one of the best endings I think I've ever seen and the way it's it's it builds on that using with Michael Nyman's um sort of march from memorial building incredibly loudly is just so good it feels like the end of like a John Webster play or 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 something from that that period of theatre that I just really really love and really yeah was completely overwhelmed by yeah, it, it's it's such an incredible thing because so many just moments if you just press pause would like warrant framing. <laughs> like, like he's really got mm-hmm. that whole thing of composition and shadow and like building to that kind of Baroque Renaissance style and like doing it with quite wild abandon. Um, it seems crazy to me that when this film came out, it was, you know, the censors really came for it. It was basically given the same rating as if it had been uh, pornography. Um, but that's not to say that it isn't quite a shocking, upsetting film. Like, Emma, did you find it quite disturbing, a lot of what happens? I mean, that I, I mentioned the opening scene being quite confrontational and it <laughs> it does kick the movie off to a point where you're like, oh, nothing after this is going to be that surprising even though there are horrific things that happen later particularly things to do with books um that I won't spoil um so I think it lets you know exactly what it is from that opening scene and like I said when I got the dvd I was like oh it's an 18 certificate I wonder if it's gonna be like an old style 18 where it would be a 15 now but I I actually think it would still be an 18 just because of the violence less so the sexual element because those scenes are kind of they're not funny but they're they're less about the eroticism I would say the fact that you know there are people just walking in having conversations in in the kind of like the the kitchen area so the the sex scenes don't feel like the reason why it's so like an x rating or or an 18 as it is now um so yeah i think in those terms as to how people responded to it i get it because it was 1989 but in comparison to what we see now it doesn't feel particularly outrageous yeah i think perhaps also what has shifted when we're watching it now is that kind of you know michael gambon and helen mirren and, and tim roth who's got a small part in this is such kind of like titans of the british industry that like that it it feels immediately like incredibly classy i suppose yeah yeah i can see that and also helen mirren can we just say i mean i ageism in Hollywood and stuff, she still looks the same. I mean, obviously, yeah. <laughs> but it's insane that this movie is like 1989 and mm. it, it looks like she could have been like 10, 15 years ago. Um, and so that, and whereas Michael Gambon looks like an entirely different person. Mm. <laughs> like if I didn't know it was Michael Gambon, I might have just been like, who is this guy? Um, but yeah, I think there is that element of prestige. Those names are people we attach uh, such significance to in the British film industry. So I think that perhaps, yeah, viewing it through a contemporary lens 
makes a difference. I will say that some of the domestic violence stuff does feel jarring in comparison to maybe when it came out. I mean, I I can't say how people felt in 1989 about those things, but that stuff felt particularly nauseating to me. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, a lot of the depiction, I'm a food person, I worked in food for many years, and a lot of the depictions of food are very unappetizing for a film that's kind of so concerned with it but Lillian I imagine as a vegan a lot of it must have been quite tough (laughs) oh yeah I mean like gagged several times watching this film especially at the 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 ending I think that it the way that that's all crafted is just astonishing um Michael Gambon as you say is is stupendously good in this film this must be the best thing he's ever done mm. um i maybe i need to watch more michael old michael gambon performances but um he is he's so horrible i cannot stress how awful he is in this film um yeah i and i i, th- I think a lot of films about sort of mobsters and and and, and gang well not you know there's sort of mob type films that's often american um rather than british there are a lot of british sort of um mob films um but it the fact that the wife is so big within that that her role and the the sort of her her ability to sort of use her own power and and actually sort of rise above that is to me so much more interesting than the majority of like mafia films for example like scorsese's films that i always just fall asleep during because there is no interesting female presence within those films whatsoever whereas it's very strong in this film um yeah and just the, in terms of the aesthetic as you were saying about like the the food and the it's um it's so interesting for Jean-Paul Gaultier does do the the costumes because I kept thinking of like um um Genet's films like City of Lost Children which Gautier also did the costumes for and and that that kind of influence that this film has had on on later films um and particularly on people like Jeanne and, and Strickland is is really interesting to see and and to ground it again back in very old art as you were saying there's like a there's a massive banquet um painting by Franz House on on the wall of the restaurant um and Greenaway is fascinated by people like Rembrandt and um Van Dyck as a this sort of Flemish um art art, uh, art of the Baroque so it's it's the way that that's sort of infused into the film itself feels so much more interesting on an aesthetic level than than a lot of attention is paid to I think perhaps to maybe a bigger budget film um might do to that to that kind of composition which as you said Layla can just sort of be framed at every single um point within the film yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. It kind of coming back to it after maybe 10 years since I saw it last. Um it's kind of no no less striking because I think each rewatch there's sort of a new little detail to pick out on when you know it comes to even Gambon's performance is somehow ages gets better every time because it, it just seems so impossible that you're so foul and kind of boorish but then like grand as well like he's kind of bringing it to to it what feels like a Shakespearean performance but what's being so kind of the only word I can think of is scummy (laughs) but yeah Emma would you any last thoughts on um on the cook the thief his wife and her lover before we wrap up yeah I just want to mention the kind of marriage between uh costume production 
uh, design and the cinematography because the color, the way the, the different rooms impact the way the costumes change color mm-hmm. was like for a film that's so grotesque, that element was so delightful. Uh, it was visually interesting throughout. And I love this kind of intense white bathroom. Like mm. it felt kind of Kubrickian in a way, yeah. maybe <laughs> bathrooms in Kubrick because of The Shining. So it had that kind of like, you know, it was just so much. Fun. I've never wanted to go back to a bathroom so as much as this, basically. <laughs> and just because, yeah, the costumes do change color depending on what room they're in. It's just mm. a really fascinating idea that I don't think I've ever seen anyone do before or, yeah. I would like to see it again, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, as a gimmick, you'd think you'd get sick of it, but like you're still kind of like final act every time it happens. You're like, yay! <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I mean, you shouldn't really say yay of a film with such incredibly dark themes, but, um, <laughs> but you know, I have to say to all the film bros that I met at university who kept showing me this film, you have impeccable taste. <laughs> Right. If you've got thoughts on these films, you could email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, Viola Davis reigns as the woman king. We travel to a surreal planet inhabited only by women in After Blue. And in Film Club, Sean Connery is the man who would be king. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Lillian Crawford and Emma Fraser. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Jake Cunningham. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.